0: Young people. Whether you call them Gen Z, Gen Z, post-millennials or anything else, if you work in higher education, you have to understand them. That understanding goes beyond simply knowing who they're listening to on Spotify, what memes are hot right now and getting your head around TikTok. It's much deeper. You need to know what motivates them, how and when they want to consume content and what else is filling their heads. Without that understanding, well, you'll struggle to connect. At best, you'll simply miss the mark. At worst, you'll be that person. Which person? That person. How do you do, fellow kids? What? Luckily, you don't have to work out how to be cool by yourself. Oh, top tip, probably don't say cool. No, there is plenty of useful information out there to help you get in the shoes of today's young people and work with them in a way that will resonate with them and that will actually have an impact, starting with this very podcast episode.
1: There is nothing worse than an office full of millennials thinking about what would have been cool 15 years ago and applying that to a youth audience. The best approach would always be, in my my opinion, would be to engage some of your target audience and student ambassadors are a really obvious choice for that so a one of the findings that my research sort of highlighted was that you know several reports indicate the biggest issue in people is lack of work experience they worry everyone's got a degree now it's, it's of less value because so many people are going so to stand out in the jobs market you need not only your degree maybe a master's but you might also need relevant career experience that's really hard to get on the flip side, your recruitment marketing team wants to be relevant to young people. They need young people to front it. They need young people to inform. And also, like, stress test, like, is this, does this make sense? What are the pitfalls we should plan for? How do we create content in an exciting way? If you provide those work experience or paid, employable opportunities to young people that are at your university already, it's kind of a win-win because you can kind of give that experience but also help shape your content and know it's relevant. Yeah, hi, I'm Rebecca Roberts. I'm founder of Thread and Fable.
0: Rebecca Roberts has become something of an expert on Gen Z this year after sifting through 50 different reports about today's youth and pulling out common trends, interesting facts, and a bunch of stats you really can't ignore into a behemoth report of their own. Basically, she's done a ton of reading, a ton of thinking, and a ton of analysis about today's young people, and left you with loads of useful stuff to act upon. In this episode, Rebecca will take you through her findings, offer some action points for you to work on, and explain how to get real cut through with your target audience.
1: Yes, at the university if you're, you know, or a brand, you're expected to have that transparency or ability. You know, if you, if you don't have a, a way that you know, people can reach out to you or ask those questions or challenge you, then you're, you're going to miss out on so much interaction and, and I guess not look genuine to them.
0: From the Access platform, I'm Dave, she's Rebecca, and this is Inspiration on Tap. known rebecca for a few years now and have long been an admirer of her work her business thread and fable and of her as a person not just because like me she supports the mighty aston villa no put simply she's really smart and does really good stuff and from a higher ed point of view she gets it having spent a couple of years as deputy director of marketing and recruitment at keel university when she told me about the mega report on gen z she'd been compiling i knew i had to get her on this podcast to talk about it The tricky bit was actually finding a time when our calendars aligned. First of all, we tried and failed to find a slot to meet in person. So we then decided to do something via the friend of podcasters everywhere, Skype. Naturally then, just at the point we wanted to use it, Skype wouldn't play ball. I tried to add Rebecca to my list of contacts and all I got in return was a whirling icon and that unnerving sense that nothing was happening. Rebecca tried to add me and got exactly the same outcome. Cool, thanks Skype. So it was on to plan C, the good old fashioned telephone. I dialed, it rang, Rebecca answered, and finally we were able to begin.
1: It's going to make really old, but I've been working in marketing comms roles for probably about 17 years or so, and predominantly that was in house. So, working in um, mainly sport roles, actually, so Western Football Club, Volleyball England, British Volleyball, and then London 2012 got announced, and it was just seemed like a really exciting time to stay in sport. So, I got a role working for the English Institute of Sport, working across all kind of Paralympic, Olympic, and English sports. So I was there almost seven years and then decided I kind of wanted to test my marketing skills and um, took a job as the Director of Student Recruitment and Marketing at Keele University. and was there for a couple of years and developed their sort of first campaigns, and then set up my own thing almost three years ago now. So I... Tread of Fables, their marketing and communications agency. Fred of Fable offers marketing and communications consultancy. That's everything from some interim support. So often when there's gaps in the team and need some kind of additional um, help, it's been sort of campaign and um, development and rollout, project management, and lots of different things around sort of brand messaging, PR, um, and events and things. So quite a broad mix. Mainly my clients are kind of education sector and sport clients, but I've also had quite a lot. of Charity clients, and that's been a kind of a growing area for me in, in recent years.
0: The obvious place to start when chatting to Rebecca about this piece of work is simply to ask, why? Why spend all that time putting together stats from here, there, and everywhere? Well, it actually started as something Rebecca was just doing for herself to stay on top of everything, which kind of then grew into its own thing. I think for
1: me, it was that move into higher education, and I felt like every week there was a new report, a new insight. some more data Um, obviously HE loves the league table but I felt like there was just a, a ream of research all the time and it was quite hard to keep across of what was the latest thing and also a lot of these reports that I saw coming out around you know the broad bracket of young people often had quite a I guess, a predetermined angle. Often it was from a commercial perspective, like, hey, if you want to sell more of this, do this, or this is what their digital preferences are, we're also selling this. And, and again, that was quite hard to navigate sometimes. And I felt like having come from a, a background working in sport and looking at things like, you know, health and participation, as well as the, the performance end, I felt there was this, a little bit of a disconnect between things that were going on in young people's lives and the data. So it started off really with me just reading through stuff and compiling stuff for personal, kind of, I'm going to use this, I just wanted to keep across it. And then the more people I worked with and talked about, they were like, actually, would you mind sharing that? So yeah, it was enough 50 reports in the end. A lot of them were stripped out and not used, but yeah, it it was a labour of love and it turned into a bit of a report by the end of it.
0: Sifting through 50 reports of varying quality and focus and pulling them into one coherent document is no mean feat. In fact, to quote my favourite teen movie character... I don't know, man, that sounds like a lot of work as it happens it was hard work but it was also an opportunity for rebecca to just geek out
1: yeah yes and no i mean i was really adamant i guess that i didn't want this to be to solve any specific thing that i was looking for like not a specific answer or a specific end goal because i felt that would shape and i guess detract from what where i was trying to take it so I kind of chipped away at it and let it kind of breathe a little bit and let the findings of identify key things that I thought that were relevant. And that really helped identify some of the causations and correlations that the report found. That was quite, I just geeked out on it. I kind of really enjoyed reading it. It's kind of like a hobby. And then I guess the only bit of real graft was, right, I've got to draw a line now. I've got to get to a place where I can Use something. So yeah, that was that was an effort. I had to write the block a little, but yeah, it was it was good fun. It's a real mixed bag out there. I think any time you're looking at to put together a campaign and you want to use some insights, obviously your own bias and what you kind of think is always going to determine that. So I think one bit of data alone can't really solve the picture. So I, I would say that even though some of the the data was relatively small samples, and I wouldn't say necessarily academically robust in terms of research number and efficacy or whatever I would always say that there's an element of truth in most research and insights like it, it might not be standard as you did it across a whole population but there might be a nugget in there that could be useful in some way so I tried to put as much of those kind of findings together and when I found that several reports are saying similar things I felt that that was a theme and something that I could lean on more. Um and it's definitely something I think that will shape the forthcoming bits I'm to do as well.
0: There's no getting away from the fact that there are a lot of studies out there about Gen Z. This generation seems to have captured the imagination of marketers, brands and the wider world more than any other before it. For Rebecca, there's an obvious reason for that. It's the same reason that drives pretty much everything in the world.
1: I would say money. I guess and the eternal fascination with using the next big thing. So I think if big brands like Nike have to worry about being relevant to young people, sort of refreshing what they do to stay kind of captive and interesting, then I think the rest of us have to take notes. Um, and I think there is a, an obsession with what's the next big trend going to be. And I think that was one element of it. And I think the other side of when you're looking at that kind of, yes, horizon scanning, what's new and what's going to attract your eye, there is a, a real interesting kind of area around the actual issues and motivations and behaviours, I guess the psychology around it, which is less, fast paced and different I think if you can couple them you get to a better place around understanding young people.
0: With all that background stuff covered it was time to dive into Rebecca's report a link to which by the way you'll find in the description for this episode and on our blog. Do check it out yourself it is well worth your time. Rebecca had divided her report into a bunch of sections some of which we'll get stuck into later in our chat but first I asked Rebecca for an executive summary of it all.
1: I think what I found was there's a lot in the media and I guess in the research market around young people's preferences you know how they like to engage with brands and uh, the channels they prefer and that's that is still and will always be very interesting but I felt there there's other I guess darker side around the society around young people their health uh, and some of the issues they're facing and I think when you look at it's not always easy to say that's a direct cause but there are certainly correlations there that I think are really useful so health physical and mental well-being were a key kind of theme, I guess, of the, the research I wanted to kind of make people aware and, and consider. Change was another one that I think will be a growing one, certainly if I looked at this again within the next few months. Politically, what young people are kind of going through now, I guess, you see the sort of advocacy of like the Greta Thunberg effect, I guess, and, and young people wanting to change the world and sort of feeling empowered to do this and the surprising sort of, of young people's voice. I think that's a, a really strong theme. And then the other thing I found uh, particularly interesting was around sort of family, friendships, and relationships and how that really plays out, I guess, in there day-to-day lives on social media but also some of those values and and different things around like that family dynamic and how that shapes young people I found some really interesting things about parental relationships and how they affect young people and I think I guess as marketers and communicators yes you've got a job to do but I do believe and maybe it's a bit worthy that you can do good so I think some of those issues and complexities that young people are facing I guess the marketing channels and the campaigns can probably alleviate some of those and help young people so yeah I guess the crux of it.
0: Time, then, to dive into some of those sections. The obvious place for this podcast to start was the chapter on education, in particular its subsection on higher education. As Rebecca explained, there was plenty to take away. I mean, I guess
1: I mean it's, there's no secret out there. We've had a demographic dip, and there've been you know fewer 18 year olds than ever before. But interestingly that that has meant that. I guess from a recruitment perspective, it's become so competitive to recruit students. Like, more young people are going to university than ever before. And um, what I found particularly interesting was that I guess whilst it is becoming more competitive and young people are really still seeing higher education as the route to get a job, it's had like a couple of interesting effects. So, I guess. You know, the actual structure of courses out there hasn't necessarily changed in terms of what it's offering. Um, It's still a traditional three-year full-time degree. And, you know, you look at the drop-off of part-time students, the drop-off since 2016 of over 80% for part-time students. And I think when you're thinking about that widening participation and kind of engaging the people, like that is still a major factor. When I looked at some of the other features like health, for me the standout sat there was around so Having worked in sport and one of my clients is women's sport, you know, I was like, right, I want to look at the gender differences. And there are some significant ones around physical well-being but the biggest one was socioeconomic, and that is exactly the same for higher education. So, the gap in the UK in particular is getting wider between people who are really struggling, and you yeah, know, that affects their education, their attendance of schools, things like from lower socioeconomic areas, you're less likely to have access to parks extracurricular activities you're less likely to have meals a day in the summer holidays it's a really big i've done some stuff with councils just this year actually and it's a really big issue for some areas of actually being able to feed children in poor regions so you've got kids kind of going to school trying to progress their education who are barely eating you know and then having an unhealthy lifestyle and trying to convince them of you know going on a three-year degree where the like sort of leave with quite a substantial debt and i think that is quite a stark picture, but I think it's one that's quite important, particularly where the widened participation, yes, loads is happening and we are sort of catching up. But I think still the type of universities that students are actually reaching from lower group, inclusive economic groups isn't really equal. So I think there's still quite a disparity there. The other factor that I think is really interesting around this competitive you know, student recruitment market is, is that I guess the pressure to link your, cho- you know, if you're going to go to university, the pressure to link that to an end job is pretty high. And I think we're seeing the effects of that, like the drop off in, um, I guess, more humanities subjects and more creative subjects at times, but, you know, like languages, for example, they are, if perhaps parents as well aren't seeing an end-specific job, that is a pressure. The, the flip side of that is universities' roles in communicating that, what, what's available through this, education experience what you'll leave with it's not just a degree you'll hopefully get some sort of employability skills uh, work experience and things like that so i think there's some interesting factors that i sort of identified that if i was you know doing the student recruitment campaign now i'd think about the messaging and the language i was using to make sure that that offer really hit some of these sensitive things that young people are facing
0: what a lot of that comes down to is authenticity which has become something of a buzzword for gen z for rebecca it's totally valid
1: yeah, I mean, I think for, you know, me as an old uh, millennial, or literally the oldest one, I think, you know, that decision to go on social media was like something we did, you know, we, we kind of were at university, we decided to try social media. For young people, you know, that's the Ofcom, for example, of like, you know, eight-year-olds who've got social media profiles is quite concerning. The amount of 12-year-olds who are allowed to take their phones to bed is even more horrifying. So I think, you know, these young people, Generation Z, but also Alpha's coming up, so that's kind of 2010 onwards, they've grown up with this digital world around them and everything from their tv consumption entertainment um, engagement with anyone really it's it's a lot flatter so young people are used to calling out a brand if they're not happy or liking their famous celebrities posts, engaging with influencers and I think that expectation and ability to be authentic and direct is I guess it's just a normal now it's not it's not something new it's just how they've grown up so I think yes as a university if you're or a brand you're expected to have that transparency or ability you know if you if you don't have a a way that people can reach out to you or ask those questions or challenge you then you're you're going to miss out on so much interaction and, and i guess not look genuine to them
0: talking about authenticity felt like the ideal opportunity for me to shoehorn in a question about our favorite thing at tap peer recruitment after all peer recruitment is founded on authenticity it's about connecting prospective students with current students to allow for open, honest, and authentic conversations to take place that will help people make the right decision for their future. With Rebecca having spent so long immersed in the world of Gen Z trends and facts, I wanted to get a sense as to whether she felt peer recruitment was a sensible strategy to adopt when trying to reach today's young people. Here's what she had to say It should
1: definitely form part of your approach to. It actually really explain to young people what it's like from their perspective. I think I've been involved in a couple of online kind of open day events. And whilst, you know, obviously physical open events are quite preferred, I was really amazed at how open young people were, and how confident they were at you know, introducing themselves to a group and directly asking questions to academics as well as, you know, student ambassadors. I think what's really relevant is, yes, students will ask academics and, and hopefully be quite confident about asking about their long-term prospects and the course content and things like that and the long-term goal but the reality is the closer you get to actually going to university you want to know random stuff you want to know what the bars are like you want to know what your room's going to be like what social life is like at university what sports are available so I think having that people like me someone you can ask is really relevant and don't forget you know if you're trying to make sure your student body is really diverse having people that other people can identify with, whether that's through you know, disability, ethnicity, first and family to go to university, having a diverse range of students that a student pool can kind of approach and feel like they can ask. I think it's really strong. And I've seen similar examples in the States, but also in Sweden, where they have like some sort of almost like quite famous <laughs> handful of student ambassadors that do lots of direct online chats with, with students kind of throughout the school year. And I think I think it's just really sensible that you'd have someone that's approachable, that... You can ask those questions you might feel nervous about asking like an academic
0: keep listening for more evidence of two millennials trying to prove they're still down with the kids but first a quick message for you we've all got questions right so many questions Now, think about what questions a prospective student will have when deciding where to study for their degree. Chances are a bunch of questions will come up again and again, so much that you could call them frequently asked questions. Wouldn't it be great if you could give really authentic answers to those questions by posing them to your current students? Well, with the Access Platform's FAQ feature, you can do exactly that. To demonstrate this in audio format, I hassled my colleagues at Tap HQ with my own FAQ, what do you like most about working for the Access platform? Um. 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 Our lovely customers. (laughs) Oh, the excitement.
1: How much I learn on a daily basis through both our customers and our lovely team. Uh, The people.
0: Uh, The challenge, day to day challenge of it. Get authentic student authored answers to your FAQs while also facilitating peer-to-peer chats and curating and publishing user-generated content in a few clicks with The Access Platform, the premier peer recruitment platform for higher education. We're already working with universities in the UK, Australia, the US, New Zealand, and beyond, and we'd love to work with you too. Book a demo now at theaccessplatform.com.
1: Record it and do it again.
0: (laughs) Welcome back. The second section of Rebecca's report I wanted to take a deep dive into was the one on content. Rebecca found a bunch of useful information about how Gen Z likes to receive and consume its content, including plenty of great stuff on social media too.
1: Yeah, so I found like, I guess in terms of a channel, I found it quite interesting where you know, you've got the sensational, I guess, media reports around grushing people spending all this time on their phones and how worrying it is. And really, you know, they're consuming their TV time, traditional TV time, and and all sorts of other entertainment through their phones on a day-to-day basis, which is great because you can kind of create all sorts of types of engaging content. But the reality is you're now up against such a busy backdrop of their life, that scrolling. You know, I think it's something like, we scroll the kind of length of Big Ben daily. Like, we, we're kind of constantly looking through stuff. So, to cut through that is really challenging. And what I would say is the social content is. I guess, really important to align with what they get outside of that sphere as well. So, so young people tend not to get much post, for example. So I think if you were looking at doing a campaign and you were like, well, actually, we want to land on their doormat at this time and we're going to back it up with something on social at this time, like that integration is so important because that's where you're kind of getting those several hits and people starting to connect things. Um, so I found that really interesting. I think also people are used to getting things when they want it. So I think if you're looking at having live content or things on your um, university channels, that's all well and good, but they will digest it and go to it when it suits them. So I think always catering for that, you know, whenever they're ready at any time is is important. That doesn't mean you need to have social media responses 24 seven, but I think it's just being appreciative that there's that expectation they'll consume things and ask things when they want. So I think you should kind of gear channels up for that.
0: So what does all this mean for recruitment and marketing professionals listening to this who might want to put all this into practice? Well, for Rebecca, it's about thinking seriously about what channels you use, where your audience will actually want to engage with you and what content they will expect to see.
1: I think for me, what's always really interesting is there is that obsession, I guess, particularly with youth trends, like, oh, what's the next? Should we have a TikTok account? Like, what should we do on TikTok? And I've seen TikTok used really well a lot with a lot of um, sports teams because they have really good content that lends itself well to building fan bases. And I think, as, as I've kind of said before, it's kind of like, There is nothing worse than an office full of millennials thinking about what would have been cool 15 years ago and applying that to a youth audience. The best approach would always be, in my my opinion, would be to engage some of your target audience. And student ambassadors are a really obvious choice for that. So, A, one of the findings that my research... So highlighted was that you know, several reports indicate the biggest thing in young people is lack of work experience. They worry. Everyone's got a degree now. It's, it's of less value because so many people are going. So to stand out in the jobs market, you need not only your degree, maybe a master's, but you might also need relevant career experience. That's really hard to get. On the flip side, your recruitment marketing team wants to be relevant to young people. The need young people to front it, the need young people to inform, and also, like, stress test. like, is this, does this make sense? What are the pitfalls we should plan for? How do we create content in an exciting way? If you can provide those work experience or paid employable opportunities to young people that are at your university already, it's kind of a win-win because you can kind of give that experience but also help shape your content and know it's relevant. The other thing that I found really interesting from a lot of the content of channel preferences is... Just because young people are using a particular channel, it doesn't necessarily mean they want to see you as a university on it. And I think understanding new channels is one challenge, but understanding how you are appropriate on that channel is the other big challenge. So when when was out, out, everyone's like, yeah, we, we should be on Snapchat, we should do this, which is fine. But it was kind of really a naff no-no if you start following students back. So again, it's the same with other channels, like really understand how young people are using it and whether they want to see their university there. because. There is a pressure to create that fun content and that student-led content. There totally is. But there is also this other perception of a brand and a university as being like a serious institution. It's sort of research-led, that has got quality professors and is exciting, is going to help them with their career. And I think you need both to get the right blend of mixed communication. So I think having too much wild or wacky stuff and not some official stuff and, and interesting, engaging content is kind of a real risk.
0: Rebecca's report doesn't stop at just the sections we've covered in this interview. There's loads more, which is why you should definitely spend some time with it yourself. As I said, find a link to it in the description for this episode. However, while I had Rebecca on the line, I did want to get some key takeaways from her, in particular to do with the sections on health and on friends, family and relationships.
1: Yeah, so the, I think the one thing for me that I guess is a, a concern when we talk about student health and well-being, I think that was a big one for me because there was a real correlation around LinkedIn to sort of... Friendship as well and sort of family dynamics. So I'll, I'll talk about friendship first because I think social media is a big one to play. So the way that a lot of girls versus boys tend to have their friendship groups through through school, going into kind of college, is quite different. So girls tend to have more disclosure amongst their friends, more closer, supportive one-to-one relationship, and boys typically, and this is typically, and so people vary, but typically will sort of socialise in bigger groups, and you know activities tend to be the way the route through those kind of social connections so that tends to be sport which is why there's a bit of a disparity around sport at at the high school age now social media when you layer that onto friendship in today's society for girls yet that one-to-one connection is still there you can have those conversations instant messaging the challenge there is around body confidence and I guess Platforms are sort of catching up now around, right, we're going to remove likes, we're going to, that comparison culture isn't healthy, we could do more around that and sort of direct steer content more effectively. Whereas for boys, their friendship isn't, you know, I guess the only comparative is gaming. And I think the correlation I found quite, startling particularly because I've got a son and a daughter is around you know the lack of support I guess for boys friendships on social media and the rise in young men having mental health issues and not having that disclosure and friendship group around them so I think there are some interesting challenges there when you're trying to communicate with young people and engage them the, sort of the challenges they're facing in their day-to-day lives—that pressure is quite different. And I think, yes, the socio-economic factor is huge around physical well-being and actually getting to university. But I think gender is quite another interesting one. And for example, the other thing is academic attainment among girls and boys. Like girls are a third more likely to get to university and apply to university than boys are, and I think that is quite a concern going forward.
0: I couldn't wrap this interview up without being a little bit sensationalist. After all, we are talking about young people you have to have something to turn into a clickbait headline. So in an attempt to do that, I asked Rebecca what shocked her most from her research. And in a suitably sensationalist response, it turns out the answer is death.
1: This is quite an easy one for me. So this generation coming up is the first ever in modern society to be anticipated to live less than their parents by about five years. So for me, that was like the biggest like what is this real like is that true and yeah it's um, designed to move Nike have done this massive campaign in recent years and yeah the data sacks up that um yes yeah, sedentary lifestyle health issues yeah young people are likely to live less longer.
0: In a bid for balance I also asked Rebecca what she'd learned about today's young people that made her feel great. Thankfully no death here.
1: I think that theme has changed, so the I guess We've kind of transitioned from the millennials who kind of want to do everything and kind of change the world, but almost from a selfish perspective in their careers, they can have it all. And and that kind of thing, that's a very um, cynical way of putting it, but that's kind of what a lot of the trends tell you. Whereas this generation are, I, th- I think they've grown up in a really challenging time of like political environmental change. And I think that belief that they want to change the world for the better is yeah you know, yes, Aggressive Thunberg defence, but it was around before then, I think yeah the the desire to sort of change the world I think is the most heartening
0: a bit of an aside for you since publishing this report. Rebecca has launched a campaign to help end orphanage tourism, and while it doesn't feature in the report itself, it absolutely does seem to match the motivations of Gen Z that we spent this time learning about, and there is a call for universities to get involved too. So while she was on the line, I let Rebecca explain in more detail about the campaign. This
1: is a campaign for Lumos, which is a children's international children's charity to end orphanages around the world. It's actually a um, JK Rowling charity, so off of Harry Potter. And she sort of read an article back in 2004 and was like shocked that this kind of standard of living still existed. What was really shocking for me was, yeah, around 80% of orphans actually have parents. So most children are in orphanages around the world have living parents and they're sort of recruited into a because someone makes money out of that but b because those families think that that it'll be better for their children they don't have the money for sort of health care and education so money's almost like absorbed from communities to sort of put up these orphanages um, and a lot of orphanages are sort of set up around tourism one of the shocking things was a lot of young people in in the uk and other countries so go abroad, wanting to volunteer in, in orphanages or even just backpack and then get asked to visit for a day and, and pay for the experience. They think they're doing a great thing, but actually it's really detrimental. So, yeah, we launched a campaign called Helping La- Not Helping last month at One Young World Summit in London. And basically it's a call. The call to action is for young people to share this film to kind of enjoy the debate because it's quite a challenging idea that actually this notion of helping people isn't actually helping them at all and what else you can do instead. So there's loads of advice on the microsite, which is helpingnothelping.org, around what young people can do. But from a university perspective, yeah, over 70% of these trips are actually organised by schools or universities or other sort of organisations. So we're kind of wanting, we managed to get the UK um, Foreign Office to change their policy, which now advises people not to go and visit or volunteer in orphanages at all when they're overseas and we really want universities to sort of their support we've kind of drafted like policy guides and things like that to to make sure that young people if they are traveling or studying abroad they're aware of it but also that they're not sort of organizing volunteer trips that could be really harmful for children
0: you'll find a link to the helping not helping campaign in the description for this episode By now, we were almost at the end of our chat. Skype was still spiralling away trying to add Rebecca to my contacts list, so plumping for the phone felt like the right choice. I didn't want to take up too much more of Rebecca's time, so I started to wrap things up. Also, my dog, who had been suspiciously quiet for the duration of our chat, had just appeared outside the room where I was recording this interview, while I didn't exactly want him make an appearance on the podcast, I also needed to know just what he'd done to justify the smug expression on his face. Also, was that one of my socks in his mouth? Sorry, got distracted there. Anyway, I had to ask Rebecca if this mammoth undertaking was something she'd want to do again, or if it was a one-off. Turns out, you shouldn't be too surprised if you see more of this sort of thing from her in the future.
1: I mean, straight after I published it, I was like, I'm not doing this again. But yeah, I've already, (laughs) already been... I've been really busy since it launched, and... Yeah, launched a few campaigns and different projects, and and now there's been loads of different findings that are out since. I can't help but read those and get really excited about them. Definitely, uh, we'll be doing something else next year, probably similar sort of structure, looking at a broad range of themes. But within that, I think there is some interest to do something on a shorter scale, particularly on certain issues that crop up and sort of bring everything together. So, for example, like the climate change one, politics would be another one. And there's different groups and charities I've been speaking to that. Do a lot of activism within people, and I think that's where I really want to talk about that because I think there is a a real challenge to marketers around. Yes, you have kind of corporate goals to achieve, but I think there is an element
0: of good that you can do at the same time. Finally, then it was time to bring it all together. Now I love ending an interview with some top tips. It's satisfying and educational at the same time. With that in mind, here are three things that, according to Rebecca. University recruitment teams and marketers need to keep in front of mind when trying to connect with Gen Z, Gen Z and all those fellow kids.
1: OK, so the three things I would say to university marketing and recruitment teams to keep front of mind um, is that young people have a lot going on. Yes, one can argue we always have, but I think, you know, you can't, yes, you can't consider everything that's out there. But I think if you can be as considered as you can to do things to improve their lives or make decisions easier you should secondly I think you can do good in marketing and comms it might be championing something really small like free trips on a course or travel fees from, from those for, for young people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds but I think you can hit big glossy campaign targets whilst feeling like you're doing right by young people so I really hope more people take a, an interest in and a broader view and thirdly I think if you ever want to make comms work and be creative you know, engage with young people, talk to them, involve them in your campaigns. Yes, if you can give them some paid employment experience, that's fantastic, but, yet, yeah, please make sure that you stress test us, you engage them, um, because, as I said, it's nothing more horrendous than a group of millennials sitting around high-fiving each other because they've created something that 2005 would love.
0: Rebecca Roberts is the founder of Thread and Fable, a high-fiving millennial who actually gets Gen Z, and a very smart football fan. Find Rebecca on LinkedIn, and follow Thread and Fable on Twitter, where they're at Thread and Fable. So, what have we learned here, other than the failings of Skype and the fact that my dog is an opportunist sock thief? Well, on a broad level, today's young generation want to have authentic interactions and they've got a desire to change things, even though they might not live as long as their parents will. For universities, there's loads to learn. Think about what information Gen Z really want to know and where they want to find it. Make it easy for them to connect with their peers and get honest answers to their burning questions. And don't overlook the impact of socio-economic factors on their journey to higher education. More than anything though, Don't be that person.
1: How do you do, fellow
0: kids? What? Get your young people involved in your campaigns and work with them as a partner. You'll get much more cut through and you'll be giving your young people a chance to get real work experience, something they're all desperate for, as well as a chance to make a difference to your next intake of students. After all, young people, they're the future. She was Rebecca, I was Dave, and that was Inspiration on Tap. You've been listening to Inspiration on Tap, a podcast brought to you by the Access Platform. The Access Platform is a peer recruitment tool that enables universities to connect their student ambassadors with prospective students wherever they are in the world. Find out more about us and book a demo at theaccessplatform.com. This podcast was hosted and produced by me, Dave Musson, and my guest was Rebecca Roberts, founder of Thread and Fable and author of the report Engaging Youth 2019. Find a link to that report in the description of this episode. Connect with Rebecca on LinkedIn and follow Thread and Fable on Twitter where they're at Thread and Fable. Our theme tune and ad music were written for us by Laptop Philharmonic. Find more of his music on Spotify or at LaptopPhilharmonic.bandcamp.com. Other music was by Blue Dot Sessions and is used under Creative Commons. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you never miss a thing from us in the future and so you can easily and quickly jump into season one if you haven't already done so. You'll find episodes on Reddit, Absolute Units and even a chat with the elusive University of Bantshire. Also, if you did enjoy this episode and you're able to leave us a rating or review, that would be most appreciated. Or just tell a friend about our show. Every little helps. Take care. Catch you next time.